CBP stories are behind the scenes looks at the lives of your peers who have had an inspiring journey to become who they are today. We hope that their experiences and insight will help you better yourself in some way. Cheers. Hello, everybody. I'm really excited to chat with Bryn Keenan of Grist Analytics today. And over the next little bit of time, we're going to talk about who she is now and how she become that person. But first, Bryn, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, what do you do now? Yeah, so uh, I own Grist Analytics. Uh, we're a software platform that um, was really built for brewers to help manage data uh, and turn that data into actionable information in the brewery. Um, just from like the standpoint of uh, being really user-friendly and easy and customizable for craft breweries. So now I, I mostly run the company and grow it and work on product development and spend a lot of my time, uh, you know, chatting with breweries and helping them get their QC programs up off the ground and uh, get more out of their data. Isn't it the best just talking to brewers all day long? Because I feel like each time you have a new conversation, you're going to learn something you can either take to your company to help make them better. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's awesome. Yeah. Now we do this thing. So quarterly, we for the breweries who participate in this, me and like we have some other affiliate consultants who have been in the brewing industry for a long time that do this. But we go through and uh, help breweries review their data on a quarterly basis. So in those conversations, we're just like, having these hour long conversations with basically the whole brew team at all of these small craft breweries. And it's so fun. I've, I've learned more in this year of doing all these data reviews. than I think I had in, you know, a decade of QC and brewing. Is that because you're just talking to more people or just because your company's becoming more successful? Yeah. I guess I, they go hand in hand, but I know yeah. in the virtual world we live in right now, you know, it's kind of changed communication a bit. For sure. Like, I think a little bit of both. For one, like we're, we're getting a lot of data into the software that's answering a lot of questions that I didn't have answers to. And I think like most people didn't have answers to before. So I guess just like the accumulation of a, a ton of data from different breweries. And then like when I'm talking to all of these breweries on a regular basis, I feel like I'm hearing uh, that like new papers came out or like somebody said something or this brewery is doing it that way. So I just like more it like in the pulse of what's going on in the brewing industry at large. And then I can like go look those things up and read more about them. So I, I guess both. Yeah. It's just so fun how quickly we can learn so much from so many different people just across the country doing similar but different things. Yeah. Yeah. It's so fun. I mean, even like we were doing a, a bunch of work with like, uh, dry hop timing and reducing hop creep in the last year. And like you get to know these little microcosms of breweries in different parts of the country that are dealing with things differently. And it's crazy to me how much like Washington has as a state has like figured out this one issue. And then like breweries on the East Coast have never even heard of that thing and like vice versa. That's a really fascinating, probably a whole different conversation, just tr regional trends we're seeing in craft beer. And you're not talking just style trends. You're talking just, you know, process analytics and just getting really down into the processes that they're doing. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, like the, the, the thing that I'm thinking about is like this one group of brewers had all switched to harvesting yeast from their standpipe on like hazy IPAs. And, and you, you uh, I think everybody, like ever since the podcast came out, kind of like sort of knows about that as a concept. But then you like really get into the regionality of like this really specific technical fix to like a really specific problem. And it's like, oh, wow, it's crazy 
But couldn't you argue that's how all problems are solved? One person has a better solution. They tell their neighbors, then it spreads regionally, then it grows statewide, then it's a national solution at that point in time. Do you feel you're just on the ground floor and you're closer with those people creating those solutions? Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's definitely, that's awesome. it's like so like the intuitive organic way that anyone goes around problem solving, I guess, like start somewhere and then a few people try it and then it's like N equals 10 is worth for all these people. Yeah, and I and I just uh, I feel like pretty pretty privileged and in a cool position to be able to be talking to those people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now we're gonna dive into a little bit how you got there, but because it is January 2022 right now, and I know the weather all over the country has been kind of ridiculous here in Virginia. We literally had 35 degree temperatures the other day with 30 mile per hour winds and just gross wintry mix of snow, sleet, and rain. Absolutely terrible. And uh, there's been terrible fires out in Colorado right now. So I guess my question for you right now is if you could be anywhere, and I know you love to travel, where would you rather be right now? Oh, man. Maybe like a beach in Baja. (laughs) Yeah, I just had knee surgery like six months ago. So I'm kind of out on all the things that I like typically love to do. So just like being in the sun somewhere, you know, maybe surfing a little bit. That sounds amazing. Are you able to with your recovery right now to hop on a surfboard? I think so. Yeah. I'm like back to jogging and like minor, minor things. So, you know, at least, at least in the fantasy of being in Baja, like in my head, I'm surfing. (laughs) Soon enough, soon enough. And hopefully with better weather as well. Yeah. Yeah. But let's talk about your journey real quick. You know, you're in the craft beer industry now, you're doing awesome things. When you were just a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Because everybody has that like vision, you know, you want to be a rock star, an astronaut, the president of the United States. Yeah. So I, I like, I don't even know where I got this or like why I thought that this was like something that you could be. But I remember for like a large portion of my childhood saying that I wanted to be an inventor, which is like, you know, I, I feel like in a way (laughs) it's, it's kind of come to fruition. So that's fantastic. So as a child, when you had that idea of being an inventor, did you actually create things? Yeah, we had like, my dad had a wood shop below our house. So I spent a lot of time just like, and I was the youngest of three. So, and I had two older brothers. So they kind of, they kind of just let me do whatever. Like there wasn't a lot of oversight on me. And I, I spent a lot of time like down in the wood shop, just like making things. I guess that's like what I, I, you know, meant when I was like a child is like, I just liked, I liked, I always liked building things. And I spent a lot of time just like putting things together with wood and, from a pretty young age. Was there any certain goal when you were in the wood shop? Were you trying to make things that were functional, things that were just like more so artistic? How would you describe what you were creating? I don't even remember. Like, I think I was just like trying to make tape. Like I never succeeded because <laughs> I was like a child and I didn't know how to use a wood saw. So I was just like finding, basically just like nailing scraps of wood together. Like, I think I was just trying to make like your standard wooden items like down in the wood shop. Nothing terribly creative, I don't think. So for the holidays, we got our two-year-old, my, my dad actually got our two-year-old like a toolkit with a whole workbench. And his favorite thing is like the table saw. So, you know, maybe I'll get it in his head that he needs to be an inventor. You know, yeah. build, build me something, Max, build me something. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there was like some show when we were kids where like some, like one of the characters' dads was an inventor. And like, that's where I latched onto that. But I don't know if it's like a, yeah. A, a, a standard career path that you would 
teaching. Well, I like it all. Yeah. I, I think it speaks <laughs> to your entrepreneurial journey that you initially wanted to be an inventor. But, you know, obviously at probably some point in high school or when you were growing up, you didn't go the career path to become your, you know, just a wacky inventor where you're just in a basement creating all these unique creations. You had to choose a college to go to. You had to choose a major. So at that point in time, what did you think you were going to do with your life? Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, when I, so I went to this like really cool high school that like you could choose a major essentially. So like, they had like graphic design, engineering, like all this stuff. Um, I like initially went to an art school for music for like a, a large portion of my what, what did you play at that point? I played the flute. <laughs> yeah. So I think that that was like the initial path. And then I switched schools and I just like, I never really did that well uh in school i wasn't really like terribly now i now i can like look back on it and say just like wasn't terribly motivated and like hadn't found anything that i was passionate about so i spent a lot of time like not really knowing and then i took these engineering classes when i was in high school and i just like i loved it i immediately started doing well in like all of my math classes and kind of across the board like once i had something to apply those skills to. Like I've always really loved problem solving and like building and like figuring things out and being strategic. And at the time, I think engineering was like a really cool way that I thought you'd like use, that I got to use those skills often. Um, so I, I wanted to be an engineer and then um, I got into CU for engineering. And then like at some point when I was graduating high school, I just, I was sort of over school and I decided that I wasn't going to college. And I went and lived in Thailand when I was like 18. Well, I didn't see the <laughs> conversation going this direction. Now I'm very interested. I, yeah, yeah. So I, I actually was never intending, I don't know what happened. It all just fell apart. I was like never really intending to go to college. I like went and did my thing in Thailand. I was just climbing and like working over there. I, I came back and by the time I decided that I did want to go back to school, I had like switched to biochemistry, uh, mostly because they didn't have engineering at the school, but I sort of had to go to because it was in state. Um, yeah. And then Brent, I, just, I want to pause you for a second there. So you were literally 18 years old. You went to a foreign country. Did you go alone? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a really brave experience. I mean, had you done much travel either in the States or international prior to this? Um, Not really. No, I actually, that was the first time I'd ever left the country. So what was the reaction when you told your friends and family, eh, I'm not going to college anymore. I like climbing. <laughs> I'm going to Thailand. What, what did they say to you? You know, I think, uh, so and a piece of that story, like I got into CU Boulder for engineering, but CU Boulder's like, $50,000 a year or something crazy, like even at that time when I was going to school. And my and I, my parents were like, I don't know, like they, they, they wanted to do it, but I don't think they could do it. Like it was, it was just, it was obviously like really stressful for them, which I didn't truly appreciate as an 18 year old, you know, I was like, I'll we've all been it. there. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and then at some point, like it sort of sunk in, like what a big ask that was either for them or like a big burden on me to take out loans. So when I went to them, I was like, hey, I'm gonna go in state after this year, you know, and I have scholarships in state, so it'll basically be free for tuition, like, but I'm gonna go live in Thailand this and year. Were you a person to make spontaneous or just, 
I don't even know how to describe that decision. Very oh, unique. <laughs> yeah. Decisions like that in your life. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. For sure. so that was very true to character. It's pretty true. I don't think it was terribly surprising. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so with like, I think it was just a, a mixed bag of emotions for them. I don't, I don't think it would have gone over as well. Like if it wasn't, like all of a sudden this like huge financial burden was lifted off of the family. And like, you know, the trade-off is that I'm going to go live in like a third world country for <laughs> by myself as an 18 year old. So that had to be a pretty transformative experience. And then like looking back on it now, are there some things you learned about yourself that helped you transform to who you are now? Oh yeah. I mean, I think like, like I was pretty terrified going over there I was nervous but when I got there I was I was I just didn't realize like the world was so big and so diverse uh and, and being in an environment like that and navigating it as such a as an 18 year old you know and like learning a new language and and you know just like having all these interactions and and just really like not only being like thrust into the real world but like thrust into like a real world that's like pretty difficult to navigate uh, I, I, yeah, I just feel like I grew up a lot faster, really. And I think like grew in my confidence for myself very quickly. Cause it was like one of those things that when you're young and you make those decisions, like you just don't stop and think about how hard it's going to be <laughs> really. Like you just have this blind faith that everything's going to work out and everything did work out, but it really like thrust me into, um, a lot of personal growth. No, it sounds like a fantastic experience. And I don't like to say I have regrets, but one of the things I wish I did in life was take a semester abroad or go live in another country. I've done a lot of international traveling, but I'm a little jealous that you got to spend such an amazing amount of time, you know, just finding yourself overseas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was huge. And like, I have to say too, that I like, you know, came from an incredibly like, I, I think I'm pretty privileged to have been able to do that. Absolutely, yeah. And, yeah, and not have had to like go straight to work after high school. And like, I, I wish that that was a, I wish that that was an opportunity that everybody got to get across the board. And, you know, I just want to acknowledge that, like, I'm pretty lucky. <laughs> well, and you mentioned you went over there to do some climbing as well. I know climbing is an important part of your life. You know, when did climbing become something that was not just a hobby, but I guess more so part of your lifestyle? Yeah, I started climbing when I was in middle school. Uh, yeah, I was always like a pretty active kid. And then I went to the art school and they didn't have sports. So I I think I like went to the climbing wall for a birthday party or something. And then uh, it was just like what me and my mom did together. We would go every weekend and climb. She'd belay me. Uh, and I just like got really into it. Um, and I started, we both like learned to climb outside together. I started competing in middle school and high school. So we would like travel together for, um, you know, like these these competitions uh, across the Southeast at first and then across the country, like later in high school. Uh, yeah, it was, it's pretty defining. It's, it's climbing is really um, like defined most of my decisions. <laughs> Why <laughs> really. would you say that? Uh, yeah, uh, it's like, it's just a, it's such a true part of myself, you know, like you just change so much over the years, but it's like, it's very anchoring to me. So like all, all of my, all the places I've chosen to live have been for climbing. And and I would say like beer and brewing is like another thing that's really like dominated my decision-making in life pretty separately from climbing, but climbing and uh, brewing really have sort of defined the course of my life. 
So climbing, obviously you started doing that, like you just said, in middle school, then you go travel abroad to Thailand, have an amazing experience. You spend your year there and then you come back. Is it like a culture shock coming back to the States? You're like, oh man, now I have to go to school or, you know, how is that transition back into the American culture? Oh my gosh. It was like, it was so shocking. Yeah. It was, it was a total shock to the system, but I, I also think it was like, I was, I was coming back. And I had decided not to go to school. So I was, I had two jobs and I was working in an outdoor shop and I was waitressing. I'm, a, I'm like probably the world's worst waitress. I almost got fired like 20 times. I just like, my working memory is not up to par. <laughs> so bad at it. Uh, and I just was just struggling, you know, to make ends meet, to, to be happy, like in these jobs I didn't really like. I was still living in Charleston. Like it was just one extreme to the other of life experience you know so it was like this pendulum of like wow the world's so amazing you know i want to see more things and travel to like wow making ends meet is really hard (laughs) yeah yeah and then like the call i think after like a while of like working a couple jobs i was like i gotta go back to school and where did you end up going to school uh college of charleston yeah so yeah, same place I grew up. Now, so I was doing, you know, what everybody does before in these conversations. I was researching you a little bit on the internet, and it's almost creepy how much information and timeline perspective you can learn about someone with actually actually talking to that person. And yeah. I learned that while you were at the University of Charleston, you were a research assistant who studied, let me try to get this right, the structural functionality of ribonucleotide reductase. Did I, did I say that? Yeah, you nailed it. (laughs) Cool. But at at the same time, you started as a brewing assistant at Holy Sitting Brewing. And, you know, I I see the science connection there, but, you know, how did you first get interested in becoming more involved and jumping into the craft beer industry? Yeah, I, yeah, I was, I was doing, I was doing biochemistry research. uh, And I really, I really liked it. But biochemistry research is, is really difficult like chemistry research, not to say that it's like, it's not, but it's just less time consuming. Like oftentimes in biochemistry research, like you're like inserting a gene and like you're growing it in bacteria. And then you're trying to figure out how to isolate like the protein that you've expressed and like all of this lead up work that's sort of like fermentation based, like just to get to the point where you're studying what it is that you're trying to study, like at least at like the molecular molecular level uh, an enzyme level that I was working with in college. And I really enjoyed the fermentation aspect of it. And simultaneously, it was like thinking about grad school or thinking about med school. And I just, I I went and, and looked at a few grad programs and was like, I just, this isn't for me. <laughs> this is so much life <laughs> to spend in a lab. And I think for people who are really passionate about like that type of science, it's worth it. It's really cool and enriching. But for me, I just like wanted more of a lifestyle thing. So, and at the same time, I was like getting into craft beer. Like we didn't have a lot of it in South Carolina at the time. Like we only had, I think like three breweries and like there, there wasn't a ton of it at the grocery store, or, like the liquor store. Uh, but I uh, started home brewing and just like got it in my head that I really wanted to work in a brewery and I just went around to all the breweries uh, asking if uh, they needed any interns and they all said no actually 
And then I like I I emailed Chris back who who owns Holy City and was like, okay, like that's fine, but like, you know, if you ever just want me to wash some kegs, like I'll I'll come by before class. And he was like, okay, you can come tomorrow. Were you trying to pitch at all your science background at all to try to get your foot in the door? I don't remember, but but probably, yeah, yeah. Because I, I remember like starting at Holy City and just like going in and like at first I was just going in and washing kegs before class every day. And then, and then I remember like helping with tank transfers and like seller stuff. And then like at some point, like it was in the plan to create a quality program, but like it just never, like the timing didn't work out. And were you an employee or you kind of like one of those unpaid interns we hear a lot about? I was just an unpaid intern. Yeah. And, but did this give you desire to kind of take your life goals and maybe I do want a career in the craft beer industry at this point in time or you know, how did it change the way you were thinking with regard to what we you would do next? Oh, yeah, I was totally hooked. Like I it, at, at that point forward, like that's what I was going to do. Yeah. It, I mean, I was totally sure it was it was never in question after I started at Holy City that like I would work in craft beer. So you work at Holy City, but then what did you do next? I mean, I know you ultimately ended up in Colorado, but, you know, how did you find opportunities that suited your expertise? Yeah. So I, it was, I actually remember that being a really tough choice for me because I graduated college and I could have stayed on with Holy City. Uh, but I just like, I had no interest in staying in Charleston. I like wanted to be in the mountains. I wanted to move. And um, I wound up, this is a, like a weird tangent, but like I wound up moving to West Virginia. <laughs> I love West Virginia, one of the most beautiful states there is. Oh, it's gorgeous. Like I, I love West Virginia. So I lived in Fayetteville, which is yep. where the, like the New River Gorge hub. So many great outdoorsy things there. Oh yeah, it's it's beautiful. It's great. Yeah, and I, I yeah, I moved to West Virginia. I moved to Fayetteville, and I lived in a campground, like essentially like in a tent. Uh, for how long? For like eight months. Oh my gosh. <laughs> cold in West Virginia mountains at night. Yeah, it's quite cold <laughs> and quite hot and quite buggy. It's, it's basically never pleasant to be living outside. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I like, but I, like in the climbing community, that's like pretty normal. Like you, you find it all over the place. Like people live out of their vans now. It's kind of like the new thing, but like it's, it's, it's part of the rich history of climbing that like people just kind of like rough it uh to spend all of their time and money climbing really so i moved up there i lived in a tent i was a climbing guide uh for like eight months or something uh and then and then i moved to colorado uh because i wanted to get back into beer i, I it, there's like one brewery in fayetteville and they didn't need anybody so i uh yeah packed up and moved to colorado and didn't have a job that was my next question. If you moved blind or you actually had something lined up. And just totally blind, just like packed up the car. Well, at least you knew there were more breweries you could hassle about. Hey, hire me. I've got these skills. Yeah, yeah. I had actually, when I was living in West Virginia, I had interviewed for a brewing position at Left Hand. But I didn't have, like when I was working at Holy City, I was working primarily in the cellar and like a tiny, tiny bit in the brew house. But I just didn't have like a ton of brewing experience. So I didn't get the job and I was like totally heartbroken because I wanted it so badly. I moved out to Colorado and then I ended up getting a lab tech position at left hand like two weeks after I moved to Colorado. Was your heart set on left hand or it just happened to be the brewery that had the openings that worked out? Um, I think I like, I think I 
they had the job listing I applied and like in that process learned more about them and then like became really attached to working for them. Uh, yeah, it was like funny to look back on. Uh, and I think I would have worked anywhere though. Like I, I, I was like, when I got to Colorado, I was like carrying resumes around to like every brewery. In, and I what year was this about 2015 or so? Yeah, it was like 2015. And, and you know, it's crazy to think about, but we're in 2022 right now, which is to say that's seven years ago. That's crazy. It's, it's kind of wild just to say that, honestly. But anyways, you know, the amount, the importance of a QA program and just quality control and breweries, you know, it's obviously very, very important, but we've seen breweries really step up their game, especially the past few years. You know, what have been your observations, you know, starting in 2015 to nail about, you know, where that falls, let's just say on a scale of one to 10, how breweries are seriously breweries are taking that. Yeah, I think it, uh, I mean, compared to seven years ago, it's, it's like, it's a different world in terms of QA, QC, and even just like being in QA and QC and like what we know and what we do and like what we think are our normal QA, QC practices for small breweries these days has like totally changed. I, I feel like, um, like how much breweries care about QA, QC, like, I guess I, you know, there, there are the things, there are the things that can happen in a brewery that are truly catastrophic, like a diastaticus contamination or like hop creep causing an exploding can or, um, I don't know, like a lactobacillus or pediococcus contamination. Like those are, are really damaging to, uh, like financially, if if the brewery needs to do a recall, but also to their reputation. And and the awareness of those things has grown and the importance of those things has grown. But I think like the biggest change, I think like th that's always been a nine out of 10. Like people have always cared about that. The thing that I think has changed the most is like the proactive quality and like um, just like the acknowledgement that like, there's a lot of quality control that happens in the brew house and in yeast management that is directly related to how good the beer is and the importance of like that internal like proactive QC has gone from like a two to an eight, I think. No, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. That's what we should be seeing as our industry matures, you know, focus on aspects like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. It's cool to see people get like caring before it becomes like about consequences, I guess. Just yeah, like, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. That like, yeah. People just want to be like good at their craft and have control over it. And now looking at the places you've worked, I mean, you've worked at left hand, which is a larger brewery, of course. And you ended up at inland, inland, inland Island yeast laboratories. There we go. And now you work for yourself, you know, Talk about that transition a little bit. I mean, you started at a larger brewer, went to a smaller company and now work for yourself. You know, why did you decide to take that path? Yeah, I think, uh, well, when I was at Left Hand, like we put a lot of work into like essentially like a form of what grist is, like a very minimal, like just for, like it was basically just like fermentation tracking. Um, because when I started there, like I moved up really quickly to managing quality at left hand. And I didn't always like have the experience to know when something was normal or abnormal. And I developed a lot of tools just to like help me do my job better when I was working there. Uh, and it, I just like realized how much that could help 
other people uh, and like how young of an industry we are uh, and like what a useful tool it would be for other people if I could like make it customizable and modifiable and like easy to use. And I guess I just like saw an opportunity and wanted to take it. I just, I felt like it was like one of those moments in life where you're in the right place at the right time with the right skill set, and you either make it happen or you don't. And did you start planning your own business at that point in time? Yeah, I started planning. I started planning when I was at Left Hand and then I left Left Hand and went to Inland Island because they could provide me like a bit of flexibility while I was building Grist and working at Inland Island. And, I, and it was just a cool opportunity. I was excited to work at a yeast supplier, sure. uh, you know, like QAQC at a brewery covers such a wide range of things. There's like fermentation science, microbiology, analytical chemistry, packaging stuff. And the opportunity to just really focus on micro and yeast health and like learn a massive amount about uh, that kind of thing was like really, really cool to me. No, that's fantastic. So you ended up launching Grist in August 2019. And you know, anytime someone kind of goes out on their own, it's a little scary. So yeah. what were your biggest fears when you made the jump to running your own business? Oh, uh, just like everything. <laughs> like, you know, when you were trying to sleep there in those first couple of months, you probably didn't have a whole lot of clients. Like what was going through your head as you tried to get some rest? Yeah. So we like launched the company as a concept in 2019, but we spent we basically like 2019 to 2020, we were building it. And uh, we had a couple of brewer, brewers like beta testing. And then we launched, we tried to launch in 2020, COVID happened. And like, I just felt like it was tone deaf at that point to like be knocking on brewery doors. So I took a step back, did other stuff. And then we relaunched in 2021. So like when we put it together in 2019, like it's just everything. I mean, it, starting a bit like the legal stuff was like there's so much and it's all totally foreign like the legal stuff i remember being incredibly stressful just like forming the entity and like the equity agreements and like all this kind of thing and then um our developers are are awesome and they um initially were working off of equity so like learning how to manage software developers and like how to communicate with software developers and like how to think in this like totally like logical like do a then b then c then d and like take all these big ideas and like distill them down into something that's like both reasonable but uh built so that we could make it bigger later just like all i guess all of the the development strategy because there's like so much that goes into that like not all software is like built the same and i'm really proud of how we initially built gris like i knew that we couldn't do everything at once but we put it together in a way that like it was it, it was like one block and we could really easily expand off of it. But like it was just a huge learning curve. It was really stressful. Uh, and I mean, just like, you know, you build something and you think it's cool and like you think it will help people. But initially we were marketing it as quality control software, uh, which did not work. Uh, and it, it was like kind of falling flat initially like on on deaf ears uh because it's just like 
the industry hadn't learned to think about their data in the brew house and in the cellar as quality control yet. Like QC was like having a lab uh, and then all this other stuff was like brewing and cellaring. So there was like a disconnect between how we were marketing it and how people were perceiving it. And like, that was incredibly stressful. Just like trying to figure out how to like close this gap or pivot or like find a way to communicate what it was we were doing and how it does like help like a small brewery that doesn't have a QC program. You've mentioned so many areas that fall out of your, you know, trained line of expertise, more the science side of things. You've already mentioned legal, which you don't enjoy. Then you're talking about marketing right now. So when you realized that the product wasn't being pitched the way you wanted it, you know, how did you get the right marketing hat on to be able to position it the right way? Was that a challenge for you? Oh, it was a huge challenge. Like, I feel like, I feel like I, I, I have learned that skill and I'm better at it now than I was then. Like, like truly listen. I think it's like, I think so much of marketing is just, I guess from what I've learned, like I'm not an expert in marketing by any means, but what I've learned in the process is like, you think you're listening, but like to have those conversations well, like you, you know, you like really need to listen <laughs> and like listen to what people need, like listen to what their concerns are and either like change what you're doing to address those concerns or like change the way that you're speaking about it. And I think I was like, because I was coming from the industry, like I really thought I knew what people needed. Uh, and that was like, like a professional and a personal learning experience for me to like take a step back be like, you know, like what do people actually need? Change some things about the software, change a lot about how I was talking about the software, uh, which I still continue to do. Uh, uh, yeah, it was it that I think that that's got to be challenging for anybody who's starting a company not to like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You have to always evolve your thought process and find the best way to communicate whatever it is you're trying to get across. Yeah, yeah. I feel like if you have like problems with an ego, you should probably just start a company and <laughs> it'll crush it out of you pretty quick. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully the ego's not too big that doesn't you know get those problems solved. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like it's it's good. It's it's a it's a practice and humility and like really um, switching from like thinking you have a solution to creating a solution that people need. And it takes a lot of persistence too when you're constantly beaten down and seeing what you deem as your baby not being received the way you thought it would be. A lot of people can just so easily give up and just go back to that you know cliche corporate life where you're not the one in charge anymore. You're just getting that job done a nine to five. What motivated you just to keep going with this idea of Grist and what made you, you know, so passionate about just keeping forward? Yeah. Yeah, it really does. It's like you just get knocked down over and over and over again and like keep, I know it sounds like super cliche, but you just like keep moving forward. I think it, like, I think that's just a bit of my personality type. Like I never really, I never really entertained the thought of quitting. I knew, I knew it was a good solution and I knew that the industry needed it. And I knew that like the industry would grow to know that it needed it more as industry matured. Like I just have, I had and have complete faith that it is a tool that people need. And I, um, I guess just like with that, it was like, it wasn't easy, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't easy, but it was pretty clear that I just needed to keep moving forward. And, and I think the, desire to move forward and overcome those obstacles is one of the most exciting parts about being an entrepreneur. You know, on a personal and CPP level, just the other day, 
we had to postpone our February 2022 workshop in Virginia, just the current climate in the world. We want to do it during safer times. And it, it was such a tough decision to make. But yeah. the moment I made that decision, I, I did feel a little relief. I felt relief knowing that I could now focus on how in the world could I make this even better. So yeah. I just had to realign, take a step back, pull out that notebook. And you think about, okay, look, it might not have worked out the way we initially hoped, but how can we make it even more amazing for the next go around? And for me, that desire just to always innovate, get creative and find a better solution. It's so exciting. Yeah, it really is. It's like, it's pretty truly, I always, I feel like, I feel like owning a business is like nine really horrible days and like one best day ever. <laughs> and you just like ride this high of like the best day ever until you like start to really figure it out. And then like eight out of 10 days are, you know, like hard and seven out of 10 days are hard. And like eventually, like, I feel like now we're approaching the world in which like, you know, three out of 10 days are really hard and the others are like really fun and successful. And, and for most of us, we're not going to have a, have a 10 out of 10 every day. It's just absolutely awesome. We're, we're going to yeah. have those failures. We're going to learn from them. And you have mentioned some of the challenges you face for Grist as a whole. But is there one example of just something that happened that you truly learned from and had to grow from? Hmm, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, so many things. <laughs> um, I would say... I would say like the thing I I would say like my biggest my biggest takeaway. So we we bootstrapped it from the beginning. It was just me and like these two developers who were like a smaller part of the company and uh we were just we were just trying to make it happen with like not a lot of resources for a while, uh which is one way to do it. Um but I think like that came that came came with some negatives like I learned to like be more reasonable and like more measured in our goals uh and like a little conservative like on our on our roadmap uh and now we're like at a point in the company where we're we have more resources we're hiring developers like I I'm able to like think bigger and like create this bigger vision which is so exciting and I'm just like enjoying it so much more. I mean, I've always enjoyed it, but I, it's just so much more fun now to like be able to have this like really big vision. And uh, I don't know if like, I don't know, it, you know, it worked and it's fine and it's what we did. But I think if I did it again, I would start with the resources. <laughs> start with your head been done on that one. But yeah, okay. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like, um, I think like when you're somebody who starts a company, like you're probably somebody like who has these really big ideas and this, this big vision. And it's, um, it's good to learn to like keep that in check a bit and be like reasonable and measured, but it's also a bit of a shame <laughs> to like tie yourself to like a smaller vision. Uh, so I, I guess like when, when to hold back and when to just go big are like, it's, it's something I like always struggle with. I still struggle with and and maybe like one of the biggest lessons of the business so far. So, so for decisions like that, are you having conversations and brainstorm sessions with the others involved? Are you writing like a pros and cons list? How do you make decisions like that where they're so tough? Oh, yeah, we have we have some advisors that are really great. 
that are pretty experienced in like tech startups, which is essentially what we are. Uh, and I really value their input. It's mostly, it's mostly on me. Um, and it's just like, really like, you know, uh, uh, like in, in climbing, like, and, and I think like a lot of like snow sports where like you're in the backcountry, like we often think about risk as like this X and Y axis of, uh, uh, consequence and probability like <laughs> is it like how likely is it to happen <laughs> from less likely all the way to like very likely and like if it happens like how bad is it going to be <laughs> or like how good is it going to be and like where you're comfortable like on that matrix and I think it's like very similar in owning a business like a lot of it comes down to I think like my personal ability to take risks uh, and my confidence that like the consequence is going to be worth it uh, or not worth it. And uh, the probability of it succeeding is like low or high. So I think like a lot of those decisions are pretty analytical uh, and that it's like, okay, like how good would this be if we went for it? Like what's the probability of it working out? Uh, and let's just do it. <laughs> No, I love your mindset as an entrepreneur. Like you, you love a good challenge. And I think, you know, what I learned about you today, you know, just talking about, you know, going abroad to Thailand, your love for rock climbing, literally living in a tent. You've done so many unique and exciting things that most of us don't have the opportunity to do. They sound like they've really kind of shaped you and got you ready to be a, you know, an entrepreneur. That way you can face these tough decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think for sure. It's kind of like, I think about that a lot of like those experiences have helped me in this or if like my personality type is just like sort of inclined to these types of things. Well, some people are so risk adverse. Most entrepreneurs are not. We have to be willing to take a chance and, you know, step outside of our comfort zone sometimes, try something a little bit crazy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So looking at all you've done and all you've succeeded with, you know, what goals do you still want to achieve in your career, personal or professional? Um. Are there any uh, mountains yeah, you want to climb, like, countries like, you want to visit? Yeah, I feel like, you know, with the software, we've really, what we've really got is a really good, like, base right now. Uh, and I think, like, for the breweries who are using it, it's changed the way that they brew and they sell her, like, having access to these data analysis tools uh, and, and people to, like, help them interpret that data. But it can be so much more. Like, there's so much that we don't know in the brewing industry. And I see it every day, like as we do these sessions with breweries. Uh, and I just, I really want to get the software to a point where like we can just start pumping out research with like the aggregated data that we have, like as long as like, you know, breweries are opting into that kind of thing. Uh, just to just to sort of like fill the void that's been left by like Miller Coors and Anheuser-Busch publishing research, which they don't really like do anymore. But a lot of what we know about brewing science came from these papers like in the 70s and 80s. And we just like don't really have those resources as a craft brewing industry. But but we at Grist do like we can combine all of this stuff and like we have the expertise to sort of put it together and fill in the gaps and like use uh, use like the amount of breweries that we have instead of like one brewery doing like N equals 100 runs on something. So I guess that's like a huge goal I still have for my career is like to get to the software to the point where we're generating research in almost an automated sort of way. Um, and 
to like tie in supplier data and, and just like really create like an ecosystem of brewing data that's seamless from supplier to packaging. People can like share data very easily. We can share data with suppliers. They can share data back to us. We can like communicate with um, research facilities and colleges and like really create um, like an ecosystem. No, I love it. And you mentioned a lot of the data that you've gone by before is from like the 70s. So, you know, having data that's constantly growing in a larger data set only helps us grow quicker together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, and it's kind of like, um, yeah, I guess I just see it being good good for everyone uh, to like elevate everybody very quickly, like at the same time. And then um, like personally, uh, I... I don't know. I feel like I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> like I, things are pretty good. Like I, I, I really love owning a business. Uh, like I'm getting to, getting to climb a lot. Like I'd like my knee to get better. <laughs> so do you have to force yourself to take breaks and go climb? Or are you already kind of putting that as part of your routine in life? Yeah. I'm like incredibly ADD. Like I have a, I either hyper-focus or I'm like not focused at all. So I, I kind of like, I can't really do like the binge entrepreneur thing. <laughs> I think that like people often do. So uh, yeah, I, I, it, it's just a natural part of my life. I love it. I don't know if Facebook was telling me something the other day, but I have these quizzes pop up as sponsored ads saying, are you ADHD or do you suffer from ADHD? I probably was just clicking all over the and place. You're like, yes. You know, <laughs> my mind's going in a million different directions, but apparently the internet recognized that as well. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So I spend way too much time on Facebook, as many of you know, and I don't really invest any time and energy to Instagram, which I someday hope I can, because there's so many beautiful things to look at. But, you know, in getting ready for this call, I discovered that your Instagram handle is slowest known time. What, <laughs> does, that, what does that mean, Bryn? Uh, yeah. So like uh, in running, I'm, I also run uh, quite a bit. Uh, in running, there's like a website called fastest known time. Uh, where like people log, like, like they're, they're like on Strava or whatever, like they're like these, these like trail runs, like all around the world. And like, people will like log, you know, if they've gotten a fastest known time, like on that trail, it's like a bit of a thing in the running community. So, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a play on that. <laughs> I like it. That's hilarious. Well, for anyone who's interested in contacting you or learning more, you know, how can they reach out to you? Uh, yeah, so my email is great, Bryn at gristanalytics.com, or just go over to gristanalytics.com and we have a contact form there. Um, yeah, and you know, I'm I'm free for chats about grist or for quality or um, you know, anything. If you want to chat about climbing or running. <laughs> it has been an absolute pleasure getting to know you the past couple of years. It started off virtually. Then we bumped into each other some really odd locations, Denver, of course, but out in Washington state, you know, yeah. just a couple of months ago. So I'm looking forward to that next beer together, perhaps in St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah. In June. We'll have to talk about that one, but this has been fun diving a little bit more into your backstory. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah. Yeah. You too. Thanks for the time, Andrew. It was fun. Cool. Cheers, Brent. Yeah. See ya. Bye. We are proud to keep CBP 100% free and accessible to all. If you enjoyed conversations like this, please hit the subscribe button.